welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston. And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. If you need to get a hold of me for anything, the best way is email, and that is barry at bostonconfidential.net. Feel free to reach out. But today, I guess we have to jump back into the time machine a little bit. It's been 18 years since this incident occurred. And one of the reasons I did it, I knew I was going to have to do it. I was putting it off, to be honest with you. It's a horrible, horrible story. And I'd been getting some emails on it. And people were kind of complaining that I haven't covered much to do with Rhode Island, our southern neighbor. And here it is. This story is the Station Nightclub Fire from February 2003. This case is an absolute horror show, guys. 100 people lost their lives in that building. 230 were hurt during this stampede to exit the building. And even before that, the smoke was so horrendous, people were dropping within a minute, guys. One minute. One of the strange parts of this case, and there are many strange parts, this was all captured on videotape. Not all of it, but the fire igniting. It's, it's used today in fire academies, firefighting academies, because this video, it's so well documented. It shows the spark from the fireworks that were set off inside the club. Just saying those words, fireworks inside a club have to give you pause. It's absolutely insane. It's the 21st century. It was 2003, right? We had just turned the clock at the millennium and still we're lighting off fireworks inside buildings with no firemen around. Does that make sense to you? Also, during this podcast, I'm going to try to dispel some of the myths surrounding this case. A lot of them were perpetuated by the media in the Providence Journal in particular. It seems the media had lost all standards during this frenzy to convict somebody, to point a finger, to keep the station fire in the news. Didn't have to do much of that because it was such a horrible story. But I got to tell you, the media way overstepped and quite questionable, quite questionable. The Providence Journal was very angry that they did not get a Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of the fire. But looking back, their coverage was just wrong in a lot of ways, a lot of very pertinent ways. And I think part of the reason that the media, especially the Providence Journal, went so overboard on this case is one of their own was involved in this fire. He was the owner of the station nightclub, Jeffrey Dadarian and his brother Michael. Jeffrey was a fixture on Boston television for many years, and he was an investigative reporter. 
and then he transferred back down to Rhode Island. He wanted to be in a bit of a smaller market and closer to home. So he did that, and in order to make up that income, he purchased the Station Nightclub in West Warwick. It had already been, you know, relatively, I'm not going to say famous, but popular as a live music venue. And they saw a business opportunity there, and they took it. And all the inspections, licensing seemed to be up to date, seemed like a good investment. And they jumped in, and they were trying to cooperate with the neighbors a little bit because there was some sound complaints. The police chief had basically told them, if we start getting more noise complaints from the neighbors, we're going to have to take some drastic action, which I read as saying it would be shut down. So imagine that you spend all that startup capital for the business, and then the police will shut you down. And the only real business there is, is live music. Naturally, they sell alcohol too, but live music was a draw here. And it was kind of a roadhouse type bar. You know, live music fans would really enjoy. You've probably been to a million of them. I'd never been there. But from the pictures, it seemed like a pretty cool place. But man, that would change pretty quickly. All right, guys, we're going to have to break down this story. There's so many moving parts to this. So we're going to start with the night of the fire and take it through there. There's so many moving parts to this story. If people aren't familiar with Rhode Island, or if you're from another part of the country, Rhode Island has a strange concept of politics and corruption. It's uh, been described sort of as a third world country when it comes to political corruption. A certain amount of corruption is expected and accepted, guys. But that's one of the moving parts, but let's get to the fire. The loss of life here is just staggering. All right, guys. It's a Thursday night, February 20th, 2003. The band Great White is scheduled to appear, along with some opening acts at the Station Nightclub in West Warwick, Rhode Island. The Dedarian brothers had just purchased the Station Nightclub and we're hoping to have a big draw because Great White is a hair band. They used to call them hair bands in the 80s. Take a look at a photograph and you'll know why. But they were a heavy metal band of some renown. And they had some hits, including the song Rock Me and Once Bitten, Twice Shy. But these guys were all over the place. They were on MTV all the time. Heavy metal wasn't my scene, so I wasn't into it. Personally, I didn't think they were super talented. There were better heavy metal bands out there, but they were in the mix and they were a draw during those years. But fast forward to 2003, they're kind of on a secondary circuit and they're still making a decent buck. They still have a tour manager and all that. So things are going, I wouldn't say well, but they're making a living. I bet each band member could probably make 150K at those in those years, just touring second cities like. Providence or West Warwick or whatever. So they were still rocking out, I guess. Now, the Dedarians were under a verbal agreement with the fire chief for big events that have both a fireman and a police officer present for the big events. And this was an unwritten rule between them. And those licensing agents, you know, the fire chief, fire marshal, and all that, 
So the Dedarians worked well with them. They didn't really have to have a detail, but they kind of volunteered that. So part of the unwritten rule here, the unwritten agreement between the Dedarians and the town was big events, more security, more assistance, right? So they do that, but they go back and look. They had just purchased this nightclub in the previous few months, but they go back and look to see when Great White was there previously, and it wasn't a big showing. And ticket sales that occurred prior to the show didn't indicate that that was going to change. They were hoping now for a moderate night, and I think that's about what they got in terms of attendance. There was some draw from the other bands, but Great White brought everybody out, I think, on this Thursday night in February. It was cold, snow was on the ground, typical New England night. So, okay, they'll make a few bucks, and it's not even a weekend night yet. So I think that's what they were thinking. Now, there are a lot of issues in this case regarding the capacity of the station nightclub. And it had been increased, and I think this would have been easily ascertained after the fire, but I think the Providence Journal was working a different narrative. It had been increased to over 400 people previously, and nobody seems to know that. And that was one of the linchpins in prosecuting the Dedarians for this fire is that they knowingly went over the occupancy limits. That was proven not to be true, but in the hysteria that followed this fire, that went out the window. But all right, let's stick to the fire itself. So the opening bands, they started, everything went well, but now it's the big event, Great White, the hair band of the 80s is about to approach, and they do. And they have some showmanship. There's a band manager, and his name is, you know, I'm going to butcher this name, and it's not a difficult one. It's your host, Dan Bichel, B-I-E-C-H-E-L-E, Bichel, I think. But he's the band manager, and just before Great White comes on, he sets out these potted fireworks, I guess they, uh, pyrotechnics, I guess is the right word. They're kind of like a potted plant. You've seen them in concerts. You probably don't even know it. But they shoot up these fireworks. They're called gerbs, firework gerbs, I guess. I had never heard the term before. But he set up like four of them. Two were going straight up and two were kind of bent in. So the lights would come on. They'd start this song. The song they were singing was one of their hits, I believe, Desert Moon. And so the lights come on, they get into the beginning riff, and these fireworks are going off. I think they were going to last between 15 and 17 seconds. And this video is very difficult to watch, guys, because you know what comes. You see it right before you because there was a cameraman there from Channel 12 in Rhode Island, and his name was Brian Butler. And he worked with Jeffrey Dadarian at Channel 12, and he was there to get what they call B-row footage. And this would come into play later about ethics. So what Brian Butler was there to do, believe it or not, it's so coincidental in this case, there had been a massive nightclub fire just days previously, and Channel 12 was doing a news story on nightclub safety. So Brian Butler's mission was to go to the Dedarian nightclub, the station, and take B-roll footage. 
not to do a commercial for the station. So Brian's instructions were don't put anything that identifies the bar in the B-roll footage that's going to go on the news. And he did that. And the kerfuffle over this was it violated so-called journalistic ethics. Journalistic ethics, I don't know really what they are. They're long abandoned in my mind if they ever existed at all. But the transgression by Jeffrey Dadarian was having him use his own nightclub. If the name of the club is not advertised or shot, what difference does it make? I don't know. People in the news business seem to think they have a standard of ethics. I'm here to tell you they don't. You probably already know that. Journalists are rated below members of Congress in terms of trustworthiness. So keep that in mind when journalists talk about ethics. But Brian Butler was an excellent cameraman. And when he started seeing this fire, I think pretty quickly he ascertained that this was not part of the show. And that was part of the hesitation. One of the reasons so many people died here, they thought it was part of the show. They knew it was fireworks. They didn't know that the wall was going to catch on fire and then the ceiling. But Brian walks backwards. Well, he's walking towards the entrance he came in, but he's shooting from the back. And this kid would get a lot of blowback for not helping people. But he saw that he had to exit, and he knew he had it on videotape, so he knew he had to get that video out to his truck. And Brian did that, and he had just gotten out. People just after Brian Butler did not get out. It was crazy. This happened so quickly, guys. But I'll put Brian Butler's video in the show notes so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. I bet you've already seen it, though, because it's the classic footage that's played on any news show or nightly newscast regarding the station nightclub fire. So one of the reasons there was so many casualties here was how quickly this developed. So at a certain point, you can see Jack Russell, the lead singer of Great White, who's standing on stage just after those gerbs erupted with the pyrotechnics. Stupidest decision in American history to allow those inside any place, even with sprinklers. But I'll stick to the story as we see it. So Jack Russell, you'll see him in the video tries to squirt water from a water bottle, quickly ascertains that that's not going to do any good, and he walks off and then kind of goes out the door. Brian Butler went out a different door, but the band, there was a door right there, and there was also a bouncer there, and this would come into play later as well. The bouncer apparently was directing people away from the band's door. Why? We really don't know how long, how many people, but they say it contributed to the stack up at the front entrance of the nightclub, and that's where a majority of people passed away. So this is the craziest fire I've ever seen in my life. The fire initially sparks against the wall, but it races up the wall to the ceiling, and this all happened in under a minute. You know, 16 seconds, you can see people panicking. They were originally walking towards the exit. Then they panicked, and that's where all the casualties happened because a lot of people were suffocated in the crush trying to get out the front door. It later came to light that experts would testify that 
people want to go out the way they came in because they have some certainty with that. There was at least, I think, three other doors, including that one right next to the alcove of the band. You'll see it at certain points in the video. So as you see this video, you'll see what's called a flashover effect. This flashover effect is deadly. That's exactly what happened here. And to have it on video, I think, does fire experts a lot of good. But what happens with a flashover is the fire expands so quickly. And one of the reasons that the fire expanded and caught so quickly was this acoustic foam. And this would come into play later, but the acoustic foam was highly, highly flammable. And that was behind the drummer and above the drummer, two separate sets of foam insulation. And remember, they had a little beef with the police chief about keeping noise complaints down. So I think that's what the Dedarians did. They put in some new foam. But keep in mind, some of that other foam was there previously, and it had been inspected time and time again. And this, I believe this new foam that the Dedarians had purchased had been okayed as well. So they had survived several fire inspections, and they're pretty intense, these inspections. So regardless, this flashover effect raises the temperature within that section of the bar to 1,100 degrees in seconds. And this is where it all came off the rails, guys. Skin burns at 124 degrees. And there was kind of a napalm effect with this acoustic foam because it's so flammable, but it'll just drip. It'll drip burning rubber flames onto your scalp like napalm. It will stick to you. And the ceiling was covered in this stuff to dampen down the noise. And it was just horrible. So in the next few seconds, there were already dozens of people dead. And one of the reasons people died is they all stacked up at that door. There were other exits from the fire. But in 90 seconds, guys, that's all it took. 90 seconds. I think that takes the time for you to read one page in a book. 90 seconds. And this thing was an inferno. If you watch Brian Butler's video all the way to the end, I think he actually puts the camera on a vehicle, a truck or a car. But you can hear the screams. People will never forget the screams because this was agony. The napalm foam is dripping, right? And that's literally killing people. The black smoke got others. And a lot of people suffocated. Their cause of death was suffocation because they were trampled. They couldn't breathe. They're crushed against the ground, other people, so they can't get any air into their lungs. And strangely, that's probably the best way to have went in this fire because it goes pretty quickly and you lose consciousness. Other people, I'm afraid to say, had severe, severe thermal burns and were actually lucky to not survive. It was completely harrowing. More people actually got out the windows than got out the doors. And there was a lot of heroics during the fire. People went back in to help people and never came out again, guys. But 90 seconds, can you imagine that? Little more than, like I said, reading a page in the book. 
like to go back in. Oh, so brave of them. But there was people out there on their cell phones in the parking lot who were calling people. Originally, they didn't think it was a big deal. And then by the time they hang up that phone, flames are pouring out of every window. And you could immediately see that this was an absolute tragedy happening before you. And everything else went right. They called the fire department. They were there within five minutes. They're right around the corner. A full engine company was there, and there was literally nothing they could do. They tried to pull people out of the doorway, right? This was before the firemen got there, and the skin would just pull off, you know? So it was just completely harrowing. I, I don't know if I can get this across to you adequately enough. Man, it, it was just like a Hieronymus Bosch hellscape painting, right? Absolutely insane. And I apologize, guys. This gets to me. This is a tough one for me. I remember it when it happened. I was working in my first investigative company, and my administrative assistant had an ex-husband who perished in the fire, and this guy was paying child support and all that, and, you know, they had a relationship, so it kind of hit close to home. So I just kind of want to set the stage for the news reporting and all this. As you can imagine, I'm sure if you're from the area, you remember there's nothing to compare it to. It was wall-to-wall coverage in most of Massachusetts, all of Rhode Island and parts of Connecticut. It was definitely nationwide news. And one of the reasons that makes it a big story is this video behind it. Brian Butler's video, you know, was played all over the world. So West Warwick, Rhode Island was just devastated. You know, my usual go-to response is the town was on fire. I don't think they were on fire. I think they were just laid low. They were laid back on this, on their heels, and it was just devastating. The amount of people affected. So there was a hundred victims. They all didn't die right away. Several died days, weeks, months, and I believe even a year later, people were still dying from this. The burns were so bad. They couldn't forecast who would survive and who wouldn't. And guys, those that did survive were a lot of times permanently disfigured. The thermal burns alone, it was over a thousand degrees in that place. And some people survived because people fell on top of them, you know, and they're caught in a little pocket, but they were burned. They were burned very badly. And that napalm-like foam really did a number on people's bodies, even the survivors. So man, it's just harrowing. So the number of people that died was 100. There was over 230 injured. But I think you have to multiply that by 10 or 20 because the families, you know, of these people have to take care of them and bury them and everything else. So it's just a huge tragedy that just branches out in every direction. There's so much loss. So pretty quickly, people demanded answers, and the media jumps into that breach between the police, prosecutors, and the public. They're literally reporting on it. And if you think Jeffrey Dadarian was going to get some special treatment because he was a valued member of the media in Rhode Island and in the Boston area, he was well-liked. No, that turned pretty quickly against him. They needed villains in this case. Bichelle, the band manager, 
was number one, and then it was the Dedarians. Man, it went off the rails pretty quickly, and you would think a newspaper like the Providence Journal would temper their response a little bit, knowing the emotion involved and that their reporters are human as well. So the first way I believe that the Providence Journal fumbled this story, and maybe the primary way, was the capacity issue, right? They immediately reported as fact that the Dedarians allowed more people into the venue than was allowed. It would later come out that was false by 50 or 60 people, and it was hard to determine who came and when they came because the bands were playing all night, you know, for a couple hours before Great White appeared anyway. So some people came for those bands and left. People were coming and going, so it was hard to determine. But the Providence Journal wanted to put the blame on the Dedarian brothers and did a really slipshod investigation. It would come out years later through a federal investigation that the real capacity was over 400, just over 400, and there was probably 320 or so people actually there. How they really verified that was how many people actually claimed damages in the following actions, the civil suits and whatnot. And that was still less than their capacity. So I think the Providence Journal fumbled that pretty well. Another thing that jumped out with me in the coverage of the journal, and I've read this in a couple different locations and a new book that's out as well, the Providence Journal actually gave the street address of the Dedarians, right? How dangerous is that? How disrespectful is that? They've been convicted of nothing yet. And they went out of their way to do that on purpose. And again, journalistic ethics would dictate you didn't do that, but there are none. So I do believe a rush to judgment, at least against the Dedarians, happened here. And I can point to several instances, but one of them is the West Warwick police chief, and I'm afraid I don't have his name in front of me, said, while they were still cleaning up the site, when they were still looking for survivors, that most definitely that the Dedarian brothers would be indicted. What? Excuse me? No investigation had been completed yet, but he wanted to add his two cents. And if this had went to trial, I think that would have come back to bite him in the ass. But they geared up pretty quickly. They demanded villains in this case. And the Dedarians couldn't fight back. Their lawyers said they're lining up against you, the press and the police. And lawyers usually tell you, if you're going to talk to the press, I can't represent you because it would be used against you in trial. So the Dedarians knew that their capacity issue had been solved and the Providence Journal was way over-reporting this issue. But to be quite frank, this is the type of reporting that Jeffrey Dardarian did himself. He was an aggressive reporter, used the same type of tactics. So I don't know, was it coming back to bite him in the ass in this case? Yeah, maybe a little bit. So the investigation begins, and ultimately they charge the manager, Dan Bichel, I know I'm probably butchering that name, and the Dardarians with 200 counts each of manslaughter, varying levels of manslaughter. And they came to this decision through some type of formula. And I think a lot of this, the initial charges, was some grandstanding. 
because at the end of the day, this was an accident. It was not a homicide. So we're kind of politicizing accidents and pushing them into the criminal realm here. And I know it wasn't an accident that the manager, Bichelle, lights these indoor fireworks. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life, right? But ultimately, he takes responsibility. And they do give him some type of deal. But everybody could see this guy, Dan Bichelle, the manager. He was a good guy. No previous criminal involvement whatsoever. He did something stupid and he owned up to it. And... They gave him a kind of a sweetheart sentence. When they gave this sentence, and I'll tell you exactly what it is in a minute, people went apeshit. And now that the only people remaining were the Dedarians, people wanted them to go to prison for life. But people could see that Bichel was just ruined. He was remorseful, and he was going to pay the price. The state prosecutor, Randall White, asked that Bichel be sentenced to 10 years in prison. That was the maximum allowed under this plea bargain and had a range of time. But let me read you the statement from Bichel, and he's sorry. What more can you do? He is sorry, but here he goes. He says, for three years, I've wanted to be able to speak to the people that were affected by this tragedy, but I know there's nothing that I can say or do that will undo what happened that night. Since the fire, I've wanted to tell the victims and their families how truly sorry I am for what happened that night in the pot I played in it. I never wanted anyone to be hurt in any way. I never imagined that anyone ever would be. I know how this tragedy has devastated me, but I can only begin to understand what the people who lost loved ones have endured. I don't know that I'll ever forgive myself for what happened that night, so I can't expect anybody else to. I can only pray that they understand that I would do anything to undo what happened that night and give them back their loved ones. I'm so sorry for what I have done, and I don't want to cause anyone any more pain. I will never forget that night, and I will never forget the people that were hurt by it. I am so sorry. End of statement. So I don't think the state prosecutor, Randall White, asking for 10 years is out of bounds here. But the Superior Court Judge Darrington sentenced Bichel to 15 years in prison with four years to serve and 11 years suspended, plus three years probation for his role in the fire. The judge remarked, the greatest sentence that can be imposed on you has been imposed on you by yourself. So under that sentencing structure, Bichel would be likely for parole in September 2007. One of the reasons cited for going lower than what the prosecutors recommended was the guy was a straight arrow. He had no previous run-ins with the law. He was 26 years old, and he was full of remorse. So did he deserve that sentence? Maybe a little more? Yeah, maybe a little bit more, but... Regardless, I think he was out actually a little earlier than the September 2007. I think he was out in June 2007, but he went on to a life in Florida with his new family. So I do believe Dan Bichel was responsible for what happened ultimately. It was an accident. It was a stupid accident by a young guy. I'm not going to call him a kid. So that's his sentence, but there was a massive uproar after this sentence was out. The victims themselves were upset. 
and they're going to be upset at any sentence short of death, right? And they're not going to get that anyway. But they lose their SHIT and the news media is all over it, right? So now everybody turns their guns on the Dedarians who were set for trial. And it was just crazy because I believe as the state attorney general investigated this case, he believed that a prosecution may not be in the state's best interest because there was a lot of factors. The fire marshal approved that venue over and over again, despite that foam being readily observable. There was an issue with the foam from the attorney general's office because as it turned out, it seems anyway, it seems from what I've read that the foam that was purchased, they ordered acoustic foam. They ordered the right foam and they got the wrong foam. So they tried to do the right thing. The manufacturer sent them the wrong thing. So I don't know. So the criminal case starts to look a little hairy for the state, I believe. By this point, I believe the state attorney general's investigators had discovered the fact that the Dedarians, the station nightclub that night, was under the occupation limit. So things were kind of falling off, right? There has to be some level of intent here for a manslaughter charge, something. There was no intent to harm anybody. And I think the state attorney general soon realized that he had massively overcharged these two men. And I'm not saying they're without fault, but I think criminally, they didn't do anything criminally wrong. And the attorney general was coming to that conclusion as well. He came to that conclusion because he had done some mock trials. I think he did two mock trials and the juries in both mock trials failed to convict the Dedarians of the manslaughter level charges. I also think the fact that the fire inspector had passed the station nightclub time and time again would have come out during the grand jury process in Rhode Island. I don't know if anybody knows this, but the state, and it's the state's case, there's no defense presented. They don't have to give any exculpatory evidence. They don't have to say, oh, yeah, they were under occupancy, or that, yes, the state fire marshal had passed them over and over again, and they had corrected other issues just during the last inspection when he should have caught this foam issue. So I was starting to believe that the case was just falling apart for them because the state fire marshal might have some criminal culpability here as well. And believe me, the Dedarians, their attorneys are going to go after that. So I believe they're civilly culpable, probably very culpable, I would say, but criminally, I don't think so because there's just no intent. Was there some negligence? Eh, I don't know. <laughs> it passed inspection, guys, right? And they were under occupancy. They should have had sprinklers, but the state fire marshal grandfathered them in under that clause. It was legal, right? You can't charge somebody for doing something illegal when it's legal. All right, guys, so I think I need to correct myself. Bischel was actually released from prison in March, mid-March 2008, it looks like, but the decision was made in September 2007 to grant him parole. So he was in there a little bit longer than I thought he would be, but he was released and he hadn't said much 
since his release. So people were still out for blood and they wanted to turn their guns on the Dedarians. But like I said, the state attorney general seemed to notice that this case was falling apart criminally. And in September 2006, September 21st, the Dedarians, both Michael and Jeffrey, changed their pleas from not guilty to no contest. When word of this leaked out to the survivors and the rest of the community in Rhode Island, man, the whole Warwick, West Warwick area was on fire. They knew a deal had been made. They just didn't know what it was yet. So what the rest of the public didn't know was that the state, the attorney general, and the Dedarian's attorneys had been in negotiations for a few months. They knew there was going to have to be a plea. And what they offered Michael Dedarian, he was going to receive a sentence of 15 years in prison, four years to serve, 11 years suspended, plus three years probation. It was the same sentence as B. Shell. Jeffrey Dedarian, the newsman, was sentenced to 10 years suspended sentence, three years probation, and 500 hours of community service. And that was struck because I believe Jeffrey had younger children and all this. And Michael said, he's the older brother. He'll do the time. And he did go off to the ACI. That's what they call the prison down there. And I don't think Michael Dedarian had a good time in the joint. He was kept in prison longer than was envisioned because he had some problems adjusting to this. And I think some of that was a concerted effort by the corrections department to give Michael a bit of a slap upside the head, but he was ultimately paroled as well. So in a bit of theater, the state's attorney general, Patrick Lynch, objected strenuously to the plea bargaining, acting like somehow he didn't know this was going to happen. His office had been negotiating it for months, and he could have stopped this all the way up until the point it went to the judge. He knew. His posturing was so typically Rhode Island, it's actually kind of funny. He's giving the deal, he's part of the deal, and then jumps up and down saying, this isn't enough. Brother, you offered it to them. The judge described the difference in sentencing between the Dedarian brothers as being their involvement with the installation of the foam. I don't really believe that. Some of that foam, the majority of it was installed in 1996, and the building had been inspected 20 times over since then. And then they did install some new foam, and the Dedarian brothers had receipts that they had ordered the correct foam and were sent the incorrect flammable version, right? So the case was just falling apart, but they got their pound of flesh, I guess, I mean, you're trying to criminalize an accident, so it's like water slipping through your fingers on the criminal level, right? So naturally, there were millions of dollars in civil action. They were sued. The Dedarians were sued. The state of Rhode Island was sued. So they group all this together under one civil lawsuit. There were so many people that were culpable. The Dedarians, their insurance policy, they're culpable. The people who made the foam the state of Rhode Island, because their fire marshal had missed 
all that foam over and over again. And I think that's one of the reasons that they couldn't go forward in the criminal case and they paid daily on the civil side. But again, there'd be no trial. There'd be no civil trial in this case. All the cases were grouped under one umbrella and there was a big settlement. So what appears to be about $115 million was grouped together and had been paid or at least offered to the plaintiff's attorneys. And some of these settlement figures are just astronomical. The Providence gas station, WHJY, was promoting the show, and they had their DJ, Mike something or other, Mike the Dr. Gonzalez, who actually passed away that night, you know, hosting and bringing people in. American Foam Corporation, they paid 6.3. One of the ones I don't understand, Home Depot, and Polar Industries paid $5 million, but I thought I had read during my research that the Dedarians had purchased the foam through a supplier, so I don't understand the Home Depot end of it. The state of Rhode Island in the town of West Warwick agreed to pay $10 million in the settlement. The Jack Russell Tour Group paid the limits of their policy, which was $1 million. The business owner, club owners, Jeffrey and Michael Dedarian, paid, I believe, 813000 into this fund. So people were getting compensated. How do you compensate somebody for such a loss like that? I don't know. You just do the best you can, I guess. But that was in 2008, September 2008, I believe, the civil case settled. But a lot of people wanted this case to go to trial so they could actually point the finger a little bit more accurately. But it just wasn't to be. Again, these corporations were willing to pay $25 million, but they certainly weren't willing to pay $60 million. And they may have if this case had ever gotten to a jury. So they knew that. They coughed up the dough and settled it out. The TV station Brian Butler worked for settled as part of that settlement, I believe, to the tune of about $30 million. There were some allegations that photographer Brian Butler, who was taking the video that night, didn't help people get out quickly enough. He didn't help enough people. There is some testimony, some reporting that says he you know, helped push out a panel on the wall and all this, and some people took advantage of that. So I think he did help some people, but that was the allegation. So Channel 12 did settle to the tune of 25 or $30 million on that end. So it was crazy. One of the things that really bothered a lot of the survivors was Jack Russell himself, the lead singer for Great White. He was like constantly promoting himself and was just kind of a hack at all this. He was just kind of nasty trying to make a buck off this case. And at one point, they volunteered to do some type of memorial show, and it really rubbed the survivors the wrong way. They didn't want anything more to do with Great White. Their manager started this fire, you know what I'm saying? Jack Russell just needed to go away, and he wouldn't. But their band split into two goofy, quasi-Great White bands, I guess. Just to show you what a heel this guy Jack Russell was. He was asked to be interviewed as part of a new book, and he said, yeah, I'd love to be a part of it. How much am I getting paid? When the 
journalist stated that he doesn't pay for interviews. He never heard from Jack Russell again. I know you're shocked, right? But sit down, get a hold of yourself. It's true. So in terms of changes made since the station fire, Governor Kacheri of the state of Rhode Island did make some sweeping changes. He banned all indoor pyrotechnics for a certain amount of time. And I wouldn't be surprised if that became permanent in the state of Rhode Island. What the hell do you need them for? There's got to be safer ways by now, right? It's a 21st century. I also think they did away in Rhode Island with grandfathering in of sprinkler systems. A sprinkler system would have saved everybody in this case. So I hope that's the case. And I wish it was nationwide. I had read something during my research that there was a federal bill but it was stalled. It never got through. It would have mandated, you know, places with over 50 people or something like that to have sprinklers. I know it's an expense to the owners and all that, but man, we can't have a repeat of that. And we have had repeats of the station fire since then. So it would appear as a society, we haven't learned our lesson from massive and quick moving fires like this. But I think I'm going to leave you there, guys. That's a harrowing story. I knew I was going to have to do it. I've got another one just ahead of me. I've got to do, I'll tell you, I'll give you a little hint. It's a Jeffrey Curley case. And it's weighing on me, guys. It's a tough one. It may be the toughest one yet. But I'm going to leave you there and I get on with my research. Have a good one. I'll see you on the flip side.